You're listening to the Hollyview Podcast, a message from Hollyview Church in Damascus, Oregon. We hope this message encourages and challenges you in your daily walk with Christ, but doesn't replace the importance of gathering together each week with a local community of people that follow Jesus. It's together that we are being shaped by the gospel, rooted in God's word, to share God's grace and truth. Thank you for listening to the Hollyview Podcast. Well, we're in a series in 1 Samuel. Uh, we took a break last week, but we're going we're gonna to jump back into it this week. So uh, I'm going to begin the sermon today by reading a passage of Scripture. It's actually found in page 220 in the Bibles in, in the pews, if you'd like to uh, read along. It's 1 Samuel in chapter 13. 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'll have the words on the screen as well. But I, I find it sometimes really good to know, and I don't know if you're like me or not, uh, just see in your Bible. Uh, I know sometimes like when I read something, I know where on the page it is, but I can't remember where. So even flipping back, is anyone else like me in that? Uh, so just getting aware of your Bible, um, it's, it's just a, it's a great thing, but it's also a really big book. Uh, so give yourself some, some patience with it as well. Uh, 1 Samuel 13, would you stand as I read? Just the first seven verses. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. Now 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. So 3,000 people. Uh, 2,000 to Saul, 1,000 to Jonathan. Verse 3. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that were at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines. And also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen, and troops like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash, to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. All the people following were afraid. Let's pray. Lord, would you give us wisdom and insight as we look at your word today, that we would be able to relate it to our lives uh, today and this season, that your words would be a light to our feet, a guide for us even today in Gresham and Boring and and Sandy and Damascus, that that the words would be applicable to where we're at in our lives. So Lord, give us uh, eyes to see what you'd have for us, open our ears so that we could hear, soften our hearts so that we would leave here changed, knowing you, loving you a little more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, the people were, oh, you can have a seat unless you wanted to keep standing for the rest of the sermon. The people were um, afraid. They were trembling, and so they ran away. They hid everywhere they could, and some people even, even ran even further away. And there, uh, 
There Saul is. He's at Gilgal. Um, like our Plymouth Rock, the start of where the nation of Israel be, began. And, and uh, a couple weeks ago, we, we saw Saul, who was also trembling. Remember? They were making him king. He was trembling, hiding in the baggage. And they come and take him, make him king. And the, and the Spirit of God rushes on him. And he goes from this weak, timid guy to this warrior who defeats the Ammonites. Calls them all to Gilgal, uh, where it's the start of the nation. Let's redo this covenant. Let's start again. Uh, and, and it appears that they get to Gilgal, and even though salvation had come, they weren't quite sure what to do next. They're faced with this difficulty, this army that seems huge and unsurmounting, and, and they start shaking. Fear rises up in them. They're afraid. They're, they're trembling. And before we dive into our text, I, I actually want to give you a picture, hopefully a little bit of sympathy, uh, for where the people of Israel are, are at. Now, when I was younger, we used to go to places called Blockbuster, where we would go and rent movies or video only. And that was kind of the fun thing to do on the weekends, right? You'd cruise up and down the alley, uh, aisleways and, and choose your movie. Now, I normally chose like comedy or, or drama, uh, but there's one time, once, that I chose a scary movie, like one of those creepy movies. Only once. It's the only time I've actually watched it. Uh, and it was the horrible timing of it. Because uh, I, was, I was young and maybe not thinking very well. Uh, but I chose this movie called Candyman when my parents were gone for the weekend. Uh, I thought, oh, this is going to get my blood going. Let me tell you a little bit of the, the storyline of Candyman. It wasn't written great, not great acting or anything, but it was a pretty intense movie. Uh, there's these two young ladies that are seeing like all these murders happening in, in the ghetto of Chicago, and they trace it back to this urban legend of this guy named Candyman. Now, Candyman was supposed to appear, if you say his name five times in a mirror, he would appear and then chase you down and, and, and kill you. Uh, so, so picture with me, I'm in my house all by myself, the weekend, parents are gone, uh, I've rented this movie, I, I turn the lights all off because I really want to experience it. Uh, I stick the VHS tape into the you know, player there, and, and as soon as I push play, I can't stop. Like, I'm frozen in fear. Like, I'm on the couch and it's going to run the whole thing through because I'm just like terrified uh, to, even, to even get up. Uh, the two girls who are trying to see all this thing and tracing this urban legend. I even remember them, them looking in a mirror and saying his name Candyman four times, and I'm thinking, no, what are you doing? Don't say it a fifth time. Don't say it a fifth time. What are you doing? And guess what? She says it a fifth time, like, oh! And then all of a sudden Candyman appears, and there's this chase going on trying to, trying to kill her, and I'm just, I'm just frozen in there. Like, my heart's beating faster. You, you can tell, like, your, your muscles are all tense, and there's, I can't even move because I'm just petrified. If I move, then the Candyman's going to get me. Uh, finally, the movie's over, but my heart's still racing fast, and you would not believe how many mirrors we had in our house. <laughs> Uh, all by myself, I'm walking along and going, huh, I'm not going to look. Uh, and just so you know, there is a mirror in like every bathroom. So if you have to go to the bathroom and you're petrified of mirrors, that's a terrifying thing. So having to sneak down and not look in the mirror. Uh, wow, it was, uh, it was intense as that fear in me uh, started rising up. And, and something was happening inside of me that I didn't even know. See, blood was like uh, pushing through one part of my brain. 
that controls like the emotions and, and the fear and like the reaction part, and it was actually shrinking another part of my brain where the logical uh, responses come, come from. Now, I, I know that people don't just appear through mirrors, <laughs> but for those next couple days, it sure seemed real. Uh, I would be terrified even going to the bathroom, uh, walking past those mirrors. I, I was trembling. I was shaking, just like those people of Israel were trembling. Not a candy man in the mirror, but at this huge group of Philistines that had gathered together to do them harm. Now, fear does funny things in all of us, doesn't it? It makes us see the, the world differently. It makes us perceive things differently. It makes us react and respond in ways sometimes we wouldn't even uh, care to choose. And fear, if left unchecked, will distort our kingdom thinking. Fear, if left unchecked, will distort how we, how we perceive the world and how God wants us to see the world. It often causes us to, to freeze or flee or fight. We know that. But it also changes the way we perceive things and the way we perceive God asking us to do and what he wants us to do. So, so the question is, well, how does fear distort our kingdom thinking? And I want to look at our text today, and, and we'll see three, three different things. Now, two weeks ago, uh, in chapter 11, the Spirit of God had rushed on Saul, who was trembling. He was afraid in the baggage. And as he rushed on Saul, uh, he made him like courageous, wise. He had this community around him, and he beats the Ammonites. This, this enemy that was uh, attacking and, and threatening them, he, he beats them like... This little army of a terrified people, all of a sudden with the Spirit of God, man, they're, they're victorious in that. So Samuel calls everyone, hey, let's go to Gilgal. And if you remember Gilgal, that was the place like a Plymouth Rock or like the Alamo or, or someplace where it's the beginning of the nation. Uh, we read about it uh, two weeks ago. He calls all the people back to Gilgal. And there, there he gives them the speech that we'll see in chapter 12. And I'm just going to summarize the, the speech in chapter 12, and then we'll get to chapter 13. Uh, in chapter 12, Samuel is there, uh, and he, and, or Saul is there, and he calls all, all the people. Uh, or Sorry, Samuel is there, and he calls all the people. Saul calls all the people there, and Samuel gives this speech uh, to the people all at Gilgal. And he says, look, you, you've rejected the Lord. You've said uh, you want your own king, and look, now you have your own king. We're starting again. We're renewing the covenant uh, that you uh, have broken, but now God is gracious enough to call you back into this covenant. But now you have this king. Okay, you shouldn't have had the king, but that's okay. Now, if the king would just turn and follow the Lord, it will go really well with you. But if the king rebels, if the king turns from the Lord and does his own thing, it's going to go really bad for you. And in fact, you have a say in this too. If you walk with the Lord, it's going to go well. But if you turn your back to the Lord, it's not going to go well. In this whole speech, he's, he's combining the king and the people. What happens to the king will happen to the people. And what happens to the people will happen to the king. This king is a representative then of the people. It would go well if, if you would turn and follow the Lord. Well, they don't. <laughs> Not surprising. Uh, then we get to chapter 13. In chapter 13, we'll see this anatomy of fear. Uh, a fear in, in people uh, as they have this difficulty or something they're facing and, and this fear that rises up and what it does in them. 
We're going to see three, three things. But first, I want you to look, uh, if you have your Bibles open, look at verse 3. This is something just to, to notice right off. If you notice in verse 3, it says that Jonathan, with his less number of people, remember, he only has 1,000 people, he ends up beating a, a garrison of Philistines. Hey, first little victory. That, that's great. And, and then it says, though, that, that Saul, he blows his trumpet, lets everyone know that Saul has defeated the Philistines. And you're thinking, well, no, it's Jonathan that's actually defeated the Philistines. Saul, you haven't done anything, and you're taking credit for that. Number one, what a horrible dad. Give your son credit. He's the one that, that beat him. And it's not quite the king. It's already got questions of, like, is this the king we really... Uh, want that's really going to protect us and go out and fight against us? Well, the Philistines respond to that little uh, skirmish and the Israelites uh, beating them, and they are like, great, you want a war? Here we go. Uh, verse 5. It says, And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Beth-Avon. They get this huge army in response. 30,000 chariots. Now chariots, we all know what they are from the movies, but they're like these little wagon things. Uh, sometimes with one horse, sometimes with two horses, usually big enough uh, for two people on them. Sometimes they would have like spokes in the wheels that, that would cause damage, or they'd have somebody shooting an arrow up the top. I, I think in present day world, it would be like a tank. If you had two horses and a big thing, it would probably almost be like an SUV, the size of that, or, or something maybe even a little bit bigger. Now picture 30,000 SUVs. How, how, uh, how, how big is that? It's huge. I mean, even if you just had 3,000 SUVs, try and picture 3,000 SUVs all packed together. You're creating some bottlenecks, aren't you? Like just to get... Through different places. Now in your Bibles, if you have like an NIV or some other version, you might have a little note at the bottom of your Bible uh, that says um, some earlier manuscripts uh, have 3,000. Uh, so 3,000 chariots or 30,000 chariots. And I'm going to tell you, uh, so there's maybe a copyist uh, error. The, the numbers were, there's just a little dot or something that could have been off. But, but the truth of the matter is, if it's 3,000 or 30,000, it doesn't matter. And, I'll, and I'm going to tell you why it doesn't matter. Uh, in just a minute. So if, even if you had 3,000 chariots, thinking how 3,000 SUVs parked in our property, it's huge. It's a huge area. Uh, to me, it feels like it's like McDonald's, you know, billions and billions and served. Like, yeah, we get it. It's a lot of, a lot of hamburgers you've served. This is like, yeah, this is a lot of chariots, even if it was just 3,000. But can you imagine 30,000 chariots? Huge, overwhelming. Now, um, these uh, chariots, this is, it might seem simple, but these chariots had wheels. Uh, and so to use a chariot, you would need pretty flat grass or flat area, right? You, you think if, uh, if it's too rocky or too hilly, it might not be the best to use a chariot. So you need some, some flat uh, ground to be able to f function. So 30,000 or 3,000, doesn't, doesn't, doesn't matter. You can hold both of those in your mind if you can even picture 3,000 SUVs or 30,000 SUVs. Uh, this brings us to our first point in the anatomy of fear. Here's the first point. Fear leads you to exaggerate reality. Fear leads you to exaggerate reality. See, the people were trembling because of this incredible army. I mean, all these chariots, 
uh, horses, like 6,000 horses. I mean, that's a lot. And, and men like the sand of the seashore. It's, this is, you're, they want to kill you. That's terrifying, isn't it? I mean, that's what you're, you're feeling. But let, let me show you something. Let me show you a picture of Micmash. Remember, Micmash, that's where they are. Micmash. Let's see if your brains can spot a, the problem here. Can we get that, get that picture of Micmash? What do you see as your brains are picturing? Now, we've just said this army of like 3,000 or 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horses, men like the sand of the seashore are all like Micmash. Micmash, here. So where are you putting 3,000 chariots here? Where are you putting 300 chariots? Is this a place you want to go horseback riding? How about sticking 6,000 horses in this area? Does it matter at all that they have even one chariot? If this is the landscape. And we're going to see next week in Anatomy of Faith how one guy, Jonathan, he scales these walls and ends up winning. But right now, the people of Israel are petrified because of this huge army in this area. See, fear, fear exaggerates the reality and your perception and what you see. You assess the world in a completely different way. Your body sends more blood to that emotional part of your brain, and so that you're feeling all these things, and your logical brain starts shutting down. So, so even, it doesn't matter if this is the area. There's 3,000, 30,000 chariots. What are we going to do? The fear is overtaking them, so they exaggerate the reality. Now, people, they don't walk through mirrors. I don't, I don't care how often I say Carter, Carter, Carter in my mirror. Carter is never going to appear in my house. Right? I mean, you haven't yet, but I haven't said your name. Maybe I'll try. But it's the reality of, you can say something in the mirror, but it, I know the truth. But it, that fear starts gripping and rising up in me. And so that I don't, I don't understand and I don't look at the world as it should be, but I exaggerate reality. I think we've all done this, haven't we? You get a little bump on your arm, a little rash somewhere. And start, I wonder what Dr. Google has to say. Oh no, I'm going to die. <laughs> uh, you go to an appointment and the doctor runs some tests and says, oh, we're going to get back to you in a week. And in that week, where, where does your mind go? Uh, if it's like me, it just starts taking off running because that fear is starting to exaggerate reality. What about at work? You mess up an order, maybe you invert a number, or, or you told them the wrong thing, and boy, it's going to cost your, your company a lot of money, or you're going to have to let an employee go, uh, and you know, oh boy, I just got to confront this, and you're like, this is going to be embarrassing, and man, maybe I'm going to get let go, and if they let me go, I, maybe I won't be able to find a job, and, and then I'm going to be homeless. Uh, and your mind just, it just exaggerates reality so that this one thing that you're supposed to do and walk forward in obedience, you go, if I do it, then it's the end, it's the end for me. You disobey your parents. You get caught in a lie. Fear kicks in, and, and you're, you're worried about the punishment. Boy, what's it going to take? My parents are going to disown me. They're going to kick me out. They're, gonna, they're just going to get rid of me altogether, so I can't. It's just fear taking over, exaggerating reality. 
Now let's move on to our next observation of anatomy of fear. First, it's, it exaggerates reality. Now, now Saul is still at Gilgal, and, and all the people following him were, were trembling. There's this fear uh, in, in the air, and they're waiting for seven days to hear the report. In verse 8, it says, uh, Saul, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from, from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me, and, and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. Now as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, look, there's Samuel. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Verse 11, Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the seven days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Verse 13, and Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God for which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. See, see fear leads you to exaggerate reality, but it also leads you to desperation. Point number two. Fear leads you to desperation. Desperation is the feeling of the loss of hope, or this great need that, that you you can, make, you can make acts irrationally. You, you're, not even, you're, you're not even thinking. You're moving just at the emotions and the whim of something. You're not thinking about the long-term effects. The army is coming from Michmash. The people are fleeing. Samuel said he was going to be here, and he's still not here. This is bad. It's just chaos. Things are starting to fall apart, and I need to do something. And I need to do something now. Uh, bring me the offerings. I'll take on the role of a, a priest. And that desperation then off, off, often leads to disobedience. In, in desperation, you're often not acting in self-controlled. It's just reactionary. You respond in the heat of the moment. See, Saul was supposed to wait for seven days. Hey, wait seven days. Then Samuel was going to come, make the sacrifice. It's obedience to the Lord, but it's obedience right at the very end. And Saul sees all this stuff happening and just becomes desperate. Just bring it, just bring it now. And he's sacrificing. And right when he's done sacrificing, who shows up like he said he would? And God said would happen. Well, Samuel. He, he arrives to find this desperate Saul trying to piece these things together. And the whole thing is just falling apart. See, faith, faith trusts to the end. But fear leads you to this desperation. See, fear, fear dumps, dumps this adrenaline in you, in, in your system, and it just makes you want to react. If you're not freezing, you're fighting. You just want to do something. There's a, a spider at the wheel of your car, and so you jerk the wheel of the car into oncoming traffic because there's a spider. You're so desperate to not, not get bit by a spider. It's not logical. It's not rational. I think we often act with people in this way, too, whether it's our spouse or our children or our friends. 
We're afraid of something, and so we act out of, of desperation. It might not be rational at all. We're trying to convince them of ways they should go, and we're just responding. See, fear doesn't lead you to that self-controlled obedience to the Lord. It, it leads you to take matters into your own hands and, and just pull together whatever you can. See, fear leads you to exaggerate reality and to desperation. And then finally, we'll see the third thing of the anatomy of fear. Look at verse 15. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. At the beginning of the chapter, he had about 2,000 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them, stayed in Geba of Benjamin. And the Philistines encamped at Michmash. They haven't moved anywhere. And the raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Uh, another company turned towards Beth Horon. And another company towards to the border that looks down on the valley of Ziboim, toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen their plowshare, his mattocks, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshare and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for the sharpening of axe and for setting the goads. So on the day of battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. Well, but Saul and Jonathan, his son, they had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. See, the third thing we see in the anatomy of fear is that fear leads you to become, to have this like victim mentality. Uh, fear makes you focus on uh, your circumstances, what you don't have, uh, how, how it's bad off for you. Fear, fear makes you turn inward and, and just see, oh man, I've got it worse than everybody. It focuses on, on your attention on, on the wrong things, and you end up counting the wrong things. See, the Philistines had found a way to handicap uh, the Israelites. Okay, we're not going to give you a blacksmith, so you can't sharpen any of your swords or anything, and we're going to take those away. And it was really to instill fear in them. We, we, don't, we, have no, we have no weapons. So when the battle would start, there's no weapons with them, except for Saul and Jonathan, who, two swords. Two swords against this huge army. How are you feeling? Afraid? They got all this army and you've only got two swords. Well, at least that's what you've, you've counted. That's what you're relying on. Do you remember just two chapters back? Uh, Saul, the Spirit of God, rushes on him and he beats the Ammonites. The Ammonites, I'm sure they had a bunch of weapons as well. Do you know how many swords it said the Israelites had? It doesn't mention it. It doesn't mention it at all. Because it doesn't matter. God was on their side, so it didn't matter if they had one sword, two sword, or a thousand sword. God, the Spirit of God was rushing on them, and so God won the battle for them. It didn't matter how many swords were there. They didn't even count them. It's not even mentioned in the story. And yet, here, when we're afraid, we're counting, we're counting the swords. There's two swords. If you had 30,000 swords, 
and you were up against the Lord Almighty, God All-Powerful. Who would win? 30,000 swords or God? God. If you have two swords and God on your side, who wins? You win. God is on your side. You're counting the wrong things. He's counting the people. Oh, we have less people. We're poor us. We don't have enough swords. They've done this to us. But that's never been a problem before when the Lord has moved and acted. Because fear, it leads you to this victim mentality. Uh, it makes you feel like, uh, I don't have what that other person has. Uh, I, I can't... I can't do it. I, I really can't talk to my neighbor about the Lord or, or my family about the Lord. I don't have all the right answers. I've never been educated, so I don't, what can I do? It, it makes you a, a victim. Maybe you've been hurt in the past and you're, you're, you're afraid of putting your heart out there again. You, but what if I get hurt again? And so fear makes you go, boy, I wish I had all those cool relationships that I see out there. But I don't know if I can risk. I don't know if I can risk it because I'm I'm afraid. And you become a a victim in that. Instead of risking it and stepping out, having faith in the Lord, fear holds you back. Fear fear works in the same way in, in all of us. We become these these victims that we we focus on what we don't have. Uh, you know even. This this week, this is in my notes. This week earlier on, uh, I was I was feeling so I didn't grow up here, and I've been here 20 years, uh, like all together. Um, not 20 years, 15 years, something like that. Long time, and yet this week at the beginning of the week, I was feeling like an outsider. Uh, it was a, a fear of man. I don't have the relationships that those people had when they were in high school. I, I'm an I'm an outsider. And that fear, it made me feel like, oh, man, I, I don't have what other people have. And I felt, I, I was feeling like I was a victim here. And I ended up talking with another pastor friend of mine, and he's like, what are you talking about? That's not true at all. You're not an outsider. <laughs> you're more in than like all these other people. It's not even comparing. But you're here. God's placed you here. But even that fear in me was like making me feel like, Boy, uh, where do I belong? Where do I fit in? See, see, fear, it just wants to cripple you. It wants you to start counting on the things you don't have or, or that you're lacking. I don't have enough time. I don't have enough education. Uh, my family's not really good enough. I don't know if I have the skills or the tools to, to help out. I, I'm just, uh, I, what can I do? See, fear leads you to exaggerate the reality. It leads you to desperation, and then it leads you to become a victim. And I think that fear, we, 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 especially fear nowadays in today's world, it leads us to, to come to all kinds of crazy conclusions on either side of the issue or, or in the middle. And we're, just, we're dealing with this fear of our society placing on us, even in our own lives, but not even just that. I think it's a, this fear is a natural thing we're always working through. So what do we do? Then, if we feel that rising up in us, and you're like, okay, I'm seeing reality, but I don't know if this is true or not. I, I don't know if this is reality or not. I, 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 wanna, I want you to memorize one verse with me. And, and when you fear that, feel that fear, like rising up, I want you to say this one verse. 2 Timothy 1.7. 
For God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but it's the exact opposite of those three stories we saw today, but of power and of love and self-control. God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So when you feel like, boy, the world's out of control and I don't know what I'm going to do and I just want to go back, just go, the Lord has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power. You're not a victim. God's given you the skills and tools. He wants you to step out into something. He's not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and love so that we can embrace and step out in the world. We can give to other people and self-control. We're not desperate. The world might tell you, yes, you need to just grab everything you can, be as desperate as you can, because if you don't get it, then what is going to do? And God says, no, 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 no. He hasn't given you a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Okay, will you say that with me? For God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. One more time. For God has given us a spirit, not of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. It doesn't exaggerate reality. It doesn't lead to desperation. It doesn't make you a victim. In Christ, it says we are more than conquerors because of the perfect love of Jesus that says drives out fear. So this next week, we should go out in the love and the power and the self-control that God gives us into a world and not be run or thwarted or moved by by fear. Let me pray and we'll have the worship team come back up. Lord, in the world that we live in, it seems like fear and chaos and destruction and confusion are all around. And Lord, you've given us a spirit, not of fear, that doesn't exaggerate reality, doesn't uh, lead to desperation, it doesn't make us uh, victims in this world. But Lord, you've given us uh, a spirit, not of fear, but of power, to be able to step in to areas, even when we need to, to risk, that we wouldn't shrink back, that we would be bold in our faith and our love for one another that we wouldn't be people of desperation, but that we would be people of self-control, that we wouldn't respond and react to the world out of uh, a fear, but that we would, we would intentionally and purposely live in obedience to you. And Lord, that, that our love would shine forth in a dark and dying world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You've been listening to the Hollyview Podcast. Please join us for our worship service every Sunday morning at 1030. We're located on Southeast 257th Avenue, just off Highway 212 in Damascus, Oregon. And you can find us online at hollyviewchurch.com. Thank you for listening to the Hollyview Podcast.